2: Welcome to Not Another Mummy Podcast with me, Alison Perry. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy Podcast. It's back after an extended break in which I had twins. So life has been busy for me and you can catch up with everything that's been happening with me if you'd like to over on Instagram. But today's guest is the brilliant Philippa Perry, a psychotherapist, mum and author of the number one Sunday Times bestseller, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. Philippa's book looks at how our own childhood experiences influence how we parent our children, looking at your parenting legacy, your child's environment, how to deal with feelings, how to foster good mental health and how to communicate well. I don't think that many people will read the book and think, yep, yeah, I'm doing this parenting thing brilliantly. It's one of those books that's really easy to read because it's funny and engaging, but it's really hard to read because it conjures up all of these tricky feelings and memories and makes you realise that you're not always treating your children as actual people that you have a relationship with, but instead things that, that could almost slot into your lives and uh, to some extent be manipulated to behave a certain way, which doesn't sound like a very nice way to treat your children, does it? Um, but I think you'll be really keen to buy her book after hearing some of her wisdom today. Welcome, Philippa, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I am very, very, very excited to have you. Um, ever since I saw, I think I saw a tweet um, from Who I Don't Know back in January that uh, was talking about your book and how it was coming out. My interest was piqued and I just thought, I need to read this book. I need to learn what this lady has to teach us. Um, So tell us a little bit about it. It's called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad
3: That You Did. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? It is a bit of a mouthful, yeah. Uh, But what it's supposed to convey, if anything, is that we are just part of a continuum we were, we were done to by our parents and we do to our children. So of course, an awful lot of our traits and ways of behaving, ways of relating to each other are passed down without our knowing it really. And this is to make us a little bit aware more aware of what we are passing on so that we can pass on the good stuff and maybe bracket off the bad stuff and of course when we do that sort of thing we have a lot of feelings about it and it's about getting comfortable with all the feelings that being a parent brings up in you and then you're able to help your kid learn to be comfortable with their feelings too which is quite difficult to do if you're not comfortable with yours so it's all about it's not so much about focusing on the child I think this is why it's a different sort of parent uh, book it's about focusing on your relationship with your child
2: that's a really interesting distinction because I really feel like we're living in quite a child focused time right now yes where you know the temptation is to you know listen, ask your child what they want to do all the time, to have your child almost
3: dictate to you, you know, how the week goes, how the day goes. I mean, I think it's great that children have some autonomy. I'm not against being child-centric or adult-centric. But what I'm really, really keen on is that we are all relationship-centric because what a child needs more than anything is a safe haven of a relationship with you, so they 're not being judged they 're not being um, if they are obviously every child needs guidance and and needs to know where the boundaries are but we can we can teach them the boundaries in kind ways rather than gruff ways
2: it 's hard though isn 't it because like you say we we are being influenced so much by how we were parented and,
3: you know, consciously and subconsciously. Definitely Um, on the unconscious front a lot. And it's it's
2: quite, it can be quite painful to kind of pick apart that. I mean, I, I started reading your book and... I felt a bit, a little bit sick in my stomach. You know, in, in the, the first, the first chapter where it was asking me to really look about my childhood, you're looking really concerned right now. Like I'm, like I've said something terrible. But... No, you haven't. I'm listening. <laughs> um, but you know, I think a lot of us don't like to look back on our childhood and think about ways that our parents, you know, treated us. And I don't even, even necessarily mean badly, but yeah. just you know, not being listened to or being told
3: off in certain ways. Or, you know, parents are, on the whole, very lovely, very nice people who want the best for their children. But Paradoxically, that can mean that they don't accept all of their children's feelings. So they're, they're great when the child is happy. But if the child is sad, they can try and scold them out of it or distract them out of it. And then if some of your feelings when you're growing up, you know, you're your anger or your, or your solemnness or your sadness aren't accepted by your parents because they want you to be happy all the time. So you don't feel accepted. You might start to feel that a part of you is unacceptable. And if you've been brought up like that, you you might find it very difficult to cope with these feelings of, these normal feelings of rage and disappointment and just unexplained sadness that, of course, we all have, and so do children.
2: Yeah, and there was a really interesting part in your book where you talk about how if you tell a child uh, to stop crying or that they're crying over something silly, then as an adult they may well find themselves apologising for being upset. And I totally related. I thought, oh, my goodness, how many times have I cried in front of someone and then said, oh, sorry, sorry, like, wait, my tears are away. Oh, sorry for being upset. I mean, and I thought that is because I've been told as a child to stop crying. You know, that's a really silly thing that you're crying about. You know, even though
3: your best friend has just died and you've just heard, you're going, sorry, sorry sorry to everyone, as if you're not allowed to have feelings about... Terrible things that happen yeah yeah
2: it's, it's crazy it is
3: it is a bit odd that and I think it's it's because we do apologize as well because we know that other people feel uncomfortable when we're having strong feelings because as a culture we're not that comfortable with strong feelings
2: that's true the whole thing though reminds me a bit of that Philip Larkin poem you must have heard people
3: saying this to you before yeah, yeah. I mean The thing is about they fuck you up, your mum and dad. The thing is about that is that it's implying that a child is a project that you either get right or fail at. And that is a terrible burden to put on a parent. I like to think of it like you're, you're in an ongoing relationship with your child. And like all relationships, you'll have days when you miss each other, that you miss a tune, that you don't get each other. And then you you can backtrack a bit and see where you got lost and, and get on the same page again. A relationship is always a continuing cycle of rupture and repair. Any relationship is. You miss a tune, you get back on track. You, 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 you go apart, you come back together. And I think that even if... Um, your child is an adult and, and you're an uber adult because you're in your 60s or something I think even then what you say to your child can have a massive uh, impact on them so for instance if your child's been telling you for a long time that they had a terrible time at, in some aspect of their childhood and you've been saying to them it wasn't that bad it wasn't that bad defensively you can stop doing that and you can go I can see you really did have a bad time then I can see that now I can hear you telling me that and I I can see you know that your experience was very different to mine at the time and I realised that I was you know thinking about it in a different way to how you experienced it and I'm and I'm sorry I wasn't on the same page as you if an adult child be they 20 30 40 here's a a, a parent acknowledge their and validate their feelings and their experience it can be incredibly powerful. And it's not that the person who had the misunderstood experience is ruined. They're not. They're a functioning person. They're just a bit upset about this big blot on their relationship with you. So it's never too late. So
2: if you pick the It's book never up... too
3: late to attempt. I mean, some reparations might not go to plan, but it's certainly never too late to attempt and to let go of being defensive about what your children experienced. So if anyone's reading the book and is feeling like
2: I've made so many mistakes, I mean, I've got an eight-year-old, so I'm reading it kind of, I've got an eight-year-old and I've got babies. So I'm reading it with those two parenting relationships in mind. And so I'm reading it thinking about all the mistakes I've made with my eight-year-old, but all the things I could do differently with my younger daughters. Um, But people who are reading the book and feel, oh my goodness, I've made so many mistakes they can they can make amends
3: yes we can just i mean for instance if we've been not allowing our children to have their feelings and not helping them to contain them and finding great ways for them to express how they're feeling um because what we tend to do is shut the feelings down rather than go let's find a more acceptable way of expressing your anger you know (laughs) we don't usually do that yeah um and uh, we can just stop and and next time our kids, eight year old kid is sort of kicking off, we can go, we can say something like it. I don't like it when you throw things on the floor. Um, let's draw your anger instead. I can see you're furious about this. I want you to draw a picture of it. And just so, so they can find a sort of more convenient way of expressing their feelings. Because if we tell them off for having the feelings, they'll start to think a bit of them's bad. And if we've done that in the past, we can just change. We're all malleable. We're all we're not made out of stone. We're more like made out of pliable plastic. So we can change. And just because we're at our most liable to be influenced in the first six months, the first year, two years, five years, it doesn't mean to say we ever stop being plastic and being able to be influenced. Like, I can be changed now at the grand old age of 61 by my relationships. That's really reassuring, I think, to for, for everyone to hear.
2: Um, one thing that I found really interesting reading your book was the notion of parental trolling. <laughs> and It's only a small section, but it really kind of... It really made me just fascinated that this notion that we could be jealous or envious Mm. of Mm. our children. Mm. Um, And you you kind of call this parental trolling. Tell us a little bit about
3: that. Right. Um, We want to do the best for our children. And then we realise they're having a better life than us. And then we can get a little bit cross that they appear to be ungrateful or, or... You know, because they haven't got anything else to compare it to, and we have. So we can think, I never got that many presents when I was four. And our inner four year old can start to feel jealous and act up. And unless we catch ourselves, we can sort of like, you know tell them off for not sharing their brand new things or something.
2: I've done that so many times, like taking my daughter on an amazing day trip to Legoland and then on the way home, she's saying, what are we doing tomorrow? But I'm like, we've just taken you to Legoland. You know, when I was
3: little, I
2: never got taken to Legoland.
3: So they sort of feel bad about being curious about the world then because your feelings not unnaturally have come up. And we'll always make slip-ups like that. It's not the mistakes that matter, it's putting them right. So you can go, oh, I'm sorry, I just realised I was a bit jealous of you then because I never went to Legoland as a a kid. Do you think it's okay to
2: have those conversations with your children, to be... That open about yes. how you're Yes, to feeling. some extent.
3: I don't think we should use our children as therapists. No, we shouldn't dump on them or burden them with our, our troubles or, or unresolved issues from our childhood. But we can explain, oh, I just realised I was jealous of you. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's dumping too much on the child. Yeah,
2: so I guess it's just about thinking about the conversations that you might want to have and adjusting
3: them accordingly so that you yeah. are having yeah. the appropriate conversations. Children are so in the moment um, that we can we can forget that we tend to have a foot in the past and a foot in the future. I mean, someone's got to. It's a good thing someone's got their eye on, on, on the continuum of time like that. But children are very much in the present. And sometimes we have to leave the future and the past and get into the present with them so that we are alongside them.
2: That's very, yeah, that's, that's really, really... Wise advice. Um, and arguing is something that I think that a lot of people listening probably worry about in terms of like arguing with their partners in front of um, in front of their children and the effect that might have on their children and the family unit. Um, and you you offer up this this tip in the book, which is uh, arguing in I sentences. Um, so saying, I am cross that you haven't done the washing up. Yeah. Or this is how I feel about about this situation. And when, as I was reading it, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is the most amazing arguing hack. I'm going to win every argument uh, from uh, now on. Uh, uh, it's and then not so next, about winning. And then the next sentence in the book, I think I wrote it down, the next sentence says something like... Um, um, this this isn't about winning. It's not about uh, manipulation. It's about having good relationships. And yeah. I was thinking, oh, damn it. I thought this was going to be the most amazing argument hack ever, but it's not about that, is yeah, it? Yeah,
3: being right and winning... Um It might feel great in the very short term, but it doesn't do much for long term relationships. It's much better to see how you feel, see how they feel and then work out a compromise. So there are no winners and no losers so that everybody is being considered. It might seem to take a bit longer, but actually I think it saves time in the long run. Because resentments don't build up that way. And
2: do you think that it's normal to have arguments within a family unit? I think
3: it would be very unusual if you didn't have different different ways of seeing things, if you didn't have uh, different preferences, you know, basically, if you didn't have differences. We all have differences from each other. And to pretend we don't, I think, is actually harmful. I like truth. But we can deal with our differences in ways that are abusive and ways where we don't hit below the belt. Yeah. So it's a matter of saying you like living the washing up until the end of the day. I like doing it as we go along. Who feels the most strongly about this? Not who is right. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: So about about reaching a, a resolution at the end that everyone's happy with, rather than scoring points,
3: or everyone's reasonably satisfied with. Let's yeah. not let's not raise the bar too high. With, <laughs> you know, being too optimistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 no, very
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: This episode of Not Another Mummy podcast is brought to you in association with the government's shared parental leave scheme and made for mums shared parental leave allows new parents to share up to 50 weeks of leave and up to 37 weeks of pay it's great because you can choose to be off together or separately and you can take the leave all in one go or take it in up to three separate chunks as you'd expect you can also take shared parental leave if you're a same-sex family or if you're adopting My husband Mr P is currently at home while I work and I can honestly say that it's been a game changer. He's loving all the extra time that he gets to spend with our twin babies and older daughter. He's getting more involved with the PTA at school. He's getting bits and pieces sorted around the house and I'm loving being back at work. Sheryl Sandberg once said a truly equal world would be one where women run half our countries and companies and men run half our homes. And the way I look at it the more couples who make use of shared parental leave the nearer we get to closing the gender pay gap which can only be a great thing. So find out more about shared parental leave at madeformums.com Um, so, what what inspired you to write the book? Was it were you, was it were you reflecting on your own childhood and things that have influenced? Because you've got a daughter who's in her twenties, I believe twenty six, yeah, twenty six. So, was it
3: you reflecting upon how you well, raised her? I'm a psychotherapist, and uh, I think one of the things that that I made a little note about early that I would have to write something about at some point time is that although a lot of my, I mean. Of course, I see a few clients who had incredibly toxic, abusive relationships. And if you're going to be toxic and abusive, I doubt you're going to pick up a book about parenting anyway. So I'm not really addressing them. It's it's the good, well-meaning parents. And so many of my clients had good, well-meaning parents. And because they felt they had to be in this parent role rather than be themselves, they didn't have as close a relationship as they might do. There might have been love there, but it was more driven by duty than actually wanting to be together. So it's all bit like, oh, I've got to go home for Christmas, I suppose, Mm. because they don't want to upset their parents. But on the other hand, they don't know how to be close together. And I thought that was a terrible shame that relationships were more driven by duty than by liking.
2: Mm. I think a lot of people are probably listening, though, and identify with that. They probably feel that there is that sense of duty yeah. to visit family members yeah. rather than having like a real relationship yeah. with them.
3: And, the, and other things that good parents do, um, which is um, want their children to be happy all the time. So the children kind of start to feel guilty if they're feeling anything else or feel like they can't talk about anything else. So, So much of what well-meaning parents do shut the children down rather than open them out, make the children hide from them rather than confide in them. Mm. And that and that can be dangerous even. Because for instance, I give an example in the book that when a child goes, I don't like going to aunties because I don't like the chocolate or I don't like the sandwiches or something. And you just want to say, oh, for goodness sake, you don't have to eat them. You know, we'll take your Tube of Smarties, and you can eat that, you know, don't make a big deal out of that. So the kid has had a problem, something feels icky, spicy sandwiches or whatever it is, and said, oh, nying, oh, to, the, to the mum, and mum's shut that down. Don't be silly. So that is something icky can't be shared with mum. And then, you don't really like it when the piano teacher puts his hand on my leg. Still, suppose I shouldn't make a fuss. And you think, and you think those, those things are completely different. Icky sandwiches and a hand on leg. But a child hasn't got your experience of the world, doesn't know about sexual predators, hasn't learned how how that is different from a sickly sandwich. And so they just feel like, oh, it's no use making a fuss about that sort of thing. And you really want that information. So, I mean, you get this such a lot. It's sort of like horrible things happen to children and they don't feel they can tell anyone. Mm. Well, why not? It's because when they've told them things in the past, they've been told not to be silly. I mean, another one is monsters under the bed. When a child says there's monsters under the bed or, or some such thing, or there's ghosts or something, what they are describing are their feelings. And like all of us, They find a narrative that fits their feelings. It's just that being children, their narrative isn't as convincing as an adult narrative might be. But it's something we all do is to make up a story to fit how we feel. And so what we need to listen to are the feelings rather than the content of the story. So it's like, you sound scared. Or tell me more about the monsters. What are their names? I mean, my daughter, I noticed... I had more monsters under the bed when I was in a hurry to put her to bed. You know, <laughs> so I was the monster, but mm. she she loves her mum, so she can't make me into a monster. So she makes them into the, the monsters under the bed. Then I realise I need to calm down. And what she needs is me to stay with her until she feels better. Yeah, so that's what the monsters are for. And we should listen to them. So could those monsters be anything? Is it is it a case of you yeah. really like
2: having that conversation, and finding out what the monsters are? Well,
3: you might not find out what they are, because we all have free-floating anxiety or free-floating dread or something from time to time. But it's nice if someone will just be alongside us where we're ha- when we're having those feelings. It's not about detective work necessarily. It's about Oh, you sound scared. Do you want me to lie down with you until you're asleep? Yes, please. Why not?
2: Yeah. So when I was a child and I was genuinely scared, I can still feel the fear yeah. that I could feel uh, walking down to the down the corridor to the bathroom in my mum and dad's house, thinking that there was somebody, something following me, a ghost following me. Mm. That was much more about me worrying about something else in my life, was it? As as a child,
3: I don't know. <laughs> okay, but it might have been. The yeah. thing was, I wouldn't want you to be frightened. So if you feel frightened going down the corridor, you just come into my room, yeah. okay? And we'll go down the corridor together and you'll feel much better, won't you? Oh,
2: I, I feel better just, just that's having that nice. reassurance. That's Thank good. you.
3: <laughs> so it's not that the. So telling you there's no ghosts isn't going to help you, is there? No.
2: Is it? No. Because no. the feeling is still there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's really And the thing, thing is.
3: If we get used to feeling feelings, like used to anxiety, used to being frightened of ghosts or things under the bed, we will change what we're frightened about. But the habit of being frightened can stick. It's something I call the default mood. So if a child is quite often having ghosts down the corridor or monsters under the bed, I would do anything to soothe them away from that so that it doesn't become a mental habit to be frightened you'll think of more convincing things that are following you down the corridor like next week's work schedule or something (laughs) you know
2: absolutely Um, and something that kind of stuck out in the book to me was you talking about how basically us using our mobile phones
3: around small children and I don't mean using them because you just want to check the time of your dental appointment. Okay? Right. OK. I mean, using them for contact. Right. So if we're feeling desperate for contact and sometimes it can feel difficult to be met by a baby, by a very small child. Sometimes you get moments of connection that are really nice yeah. if you're available and there for them. But they're not. You know, they're not like a psychotherapist. They're not going to know how you feel. They're not like <laughs> a best friend, are they, who gets you? No. And so sometimes we can feel a bit lonely yeah. when we're parents and we can really want that sort of quick fix of connection you can get from checking your Facebook status or whether how many likes you've got on your Instagram or what someone else has posted that you think, yay, that's fun or whatever. Mm. So you, that, that is like a nice quick hit of dopamine. Yeah, You mm. want that connection. But your baby needs that hit of dopamine as well, and they'll only get it from you. And if they see you getting that need met via a screen, that's how they'll learn to meet that need. And the trouble is with a screen, as we know as adults, it's only a quick fix until you actually do have some nice face-to-face time with someone. But I, I worry that children won't learn how to have face-to-face time if the face they need to have time with is always looking at a screen. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. It's interesting, though, you saying that, you know, I I don't mean you checking the time of your dental appointment because I guess so much of what we do these days is done on our phone, whether it's organising our life or paying a bill. And, you know, I I was thinking on the way here today, I was thinking about how when I was little, my mum would have, like, you know, you know taking me to the bank she would have taken me around the supermarket yeah she would, all of these all of these kind of like life admin things I would be kind of dragged around bored having to you know just be there while she was completing all these tasks yeah. and now so much of that is done on our phones even
3: when my daughter was little um, I still went to the bank and went to the supermarket and it wasn't boring because for her, it might have been a bit for me, because I would say, so what shall we have for dinner? Potatoes with faces on them. Let's make some faces with the potatoes that we're going to buy, don't we? And um, if we involve our children in our adult tasks like going to the bank and what that what that means, we're paying in this money. Or, you know, and this goes into the bank, and then I can take it out. You know, you make these explanations, and children are really interested. So you can have a connection like that. But you're right, a lot of that is done online these days, and uh, we have to get it done during the day. Um, but there's no reason why you can't involve your child in your task. Somebody said to me, how do I get my teenagers to empty the dishwasher? I go, you're starting a little bit late. <laughs> <laughs> because um, the best way of getting a teenager to empty the dishwasher is let them play with the dishwasher when they are 18 months old. Mm. And let them associate and, and, and do it together with the toddler because they really want to help you and be involved with you when they're toddlers, you'd much rather just get the dishwasher emptied by yourself. But if you involve them, and I had once in my kitchen, all the, all the crockery that I owned was all over the floor while my toddler was sort of organising it in her own way. But although that was quite a time-consuming process, she then began to associate things like washing up with being together and love. And so whatever, if, whatever you want your child to do, whether it's go to bed or do the washing up, if they learn to associate that with love rather than isolation and boredom, they're much more likely to carry on doing it. Yeah. And so that's how you you do it. You involve them when they want to be involved, not after it's too late for them to be interested in it.
2: Something that I was a little bit disappointed to read was that distraction is manipulative. It's my go-to technique. (laughs) I can't believe we're not
3: allowed to distract our children anymore. You can do what you like, okay? (laughs) I'm not saying you're not allowed to do it, but if, say, um, you're going to work, right, and um, your childminder or your partner is left with a distraught baby because mummy's gone to work, a distraught... How would you feel if you were really distraught because the love, the love of your life, who you cannot manage without, is leaving? For a, a time, it seems so long, you don't know whether you'll ever go to see them again because you haven't got object permanence, okay? How would you feel if somebody said, look at Action Man doing a funny dance? <laughs> It'd be very discordant, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's,
2: that's, be that's very, it very might true.
3: be. It might be disbobulating. And it might shock you a bit, but it would be very, ooh. So, I think being soothed, I think being alongside someone who's distraught is is nicer, is kinder than Action Man doing a funny dance. And people, even I had, I was looking after a little boy the other day. He was about six months old. He was distraught that his mother, who desperately needed two hours of sleep, right, was 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 left with me. But I stayed with him. I walked around. I rocked. I held him. And eventually he was soothed by his cheek being next to my cheek. They love they love a bit of skin on skin babies. And I think that. And he, when his mother came back, of course, he was quite cheerful. You don't know what I've been through, woman. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when babies do that. Yeah, it's sort of like oh, <laughs> um, because he'd sort of worked through it. You know, he was very pleased to see her. Obviously, yeah. But um, it, it's—I don't like distraction because it's manipulative. It's not being on the same page. Of, I mean, there's, there's, there's. I mean, if you're having an injection or something like that, and The nurse says, I'm going to stroke your forehead while this is happening. And I want you to concentrate on what my fingers feel like on your forehead. That's a different sort because you're not trying to trick. Mm. But when you trick and manipulate and distract, you'll get those techniques right back at you because we do how we're done to. And you might not like it when you want to discuss your kids' school report when they go, look, squirrel, out of the window. Yeah. (laughs) Might be annoying. Um, So do you think we do it because it's the easy option? I think we do it because, A, we can't bear our babies being unhappy. Fair enough. And we don't realise that the best way through unhappiness is to empathise rather than distract. Mm. If you think about when you're unhappy, I mean, sometimes after you, you know, had a bit of unhappiness because your boyfriend's going away or something like that, after you've felt your feelings and you know what they are and they're not scaring you anymore, even though you might not like them, then you're ready to read a book or watch a film, but not straight away. Yeah, because you've still got that hurt there. And if you bury it, when is it going to pop out again? You know, if you haven't worked through it, if we if we don't learn how to deal with sadness because we push it away or distract from it, we'll, we'll never learn how to deal with it and it, and it will become a problem. But if we allow it and learn that it passes and learn that, you know, our body does get bored of one feeling for for a very long time. So you do get used to the sadness. So it begins to get smaller. Then we learn to cope with it. We don't learn to cope with it by distracting from it. And And we don't learn to problem solve. Like, for instance, if two children are arguing about a toy, if you immediately just go and get another toy, they don't learn negotiation and they don't learn how to problem solve. So we that, should we should let them do that a bit
2: I think that that's the really tricky thing that's one thing that I I was really thinking about last night um was what I was watching my two five-month- old babies fight over a, a toy a, a baby toy oh right and just thinking about you know whether to step in and you know take it from one of them and give it to the other and or just to leave them, leave them to it. And I think that, as a parent, that can be quite a tricky thing to work out. Like, what, you know, how how quickly do you step in to help resolve a situation, and how quickly do you let them just? If
3: you are reaching your limit of tolerance for watching this squabble go on, you can remove the toy altogether. You can say, "I'm tired of this fight, so I am going to take the toy away." And then you take it away, not that you are bad for fighting about it, but if you 're fed up, you put your boundary down mm-hmm. you know
2: yeah yeah, yeah um, okay, so how do we as parents um, how do you think we train our children to be annoying this, this This I found really interesting okay,
3: well, when am I at my most annoying uh, when people whose attention I want aren 't giving it to me i 'm quite annoying then. <laughs> Uh, might get a bit manipulative to try and get the attention, might make up a big story to uh, make them listen. When else am I annoying? When I'm frustrated, when um, when I've been asked to do something I can't do. You know, that that would tip me over the edge as well. But I think the main reason children learn how to be annoying is when they can't take your attention for granted and they have to work at it. So if they have to work at it, they'll just get more devious and more annoying to get your attention. If you're always there and you're always responsive, they won't have to keep testing that situation to see if you are there. It's when they're testing that situation to see if you are there, that's when they're annoying. But if you are there, then you, then they won't have to be annoying. They won't learn to be annoying.
2: It, it sounds so simple. And I think that's the thing about the book is that as you're reading it, so much of what
3: you're saying sounds kind of obvious. Yeah, it's what you've always known, but maybe never put into words. Yeah. So I, that's why I had to put it into words. I mean, this annoying thing. The thing is, we have to invest the time anyway. So invest it early, positively, by giving them the response and the attention they need and we won't have to invest it later when we're correcting them for being annoying. Mm. So that's in you know investing it negatively. Yeah. So it's not that it's t- is it we don't lose any time by investing positively at the at the beginning. Um because we'll we'll have to invest it correcting Behavior that's inconvenient later on.
2: Yeah, and it, it feels like a, a, a real kind of theme running through the book is how your relationship turns into a family when you have a baby, and how yeah. it evolves, and how. I mean, I guess that's why it can be. It can. It can feel like a struggle when you have your first baby because everything you've ever known
3: has changed. Yeah it's it's a big it's a big wake up call because you can't imagine until you're in it what this being 24 seven on feels like you can feel like you lose your identity yourself who am I if I can't do that anymore if I can't be spontaneous anymore and you know your relationship with your partner if you have one changes or with your friend group it definitely changes yeah and so all these changes are, are quite discombobulating for a parent so it's so great if we can surround ourselves with people who've been there or who are going through the same thing so that we don't feel alone with it. So often we've moved away from our family or maybe even our friend group, you know, because of work or because we fancied a change or something. And we have a baby and we find ourselves without a tribe. And I think it's really important to get a tribe as soon as you can somehow. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're in that situation, because I don't think anyone can go through it without any support. Yeah,
2: I think oh, it's so important. It is hearing you talking about this, though, it kind of makes me think it's a wonder any of us get this right. It
3: feels it's like, such a big thing. It is so difficult, and it's not that we get it right; it's that we muddle through. And I just hope my book helps people muddle through more easily. Yeah. So, the book
2: you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did. Uh, Number one, Sunday Times bestseller. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, And, yeah, available wherever you buy your books, be it online or in real life. Um, But thank you very much, Philippa, for for chatting to me today. It's been enlightening and fantastic. Thank you. It's
3: always lovely to talk to a mother or a father. Thank you very much. Thank you. I don't
2: know about you but i found that really really interesting and uh yeah i really recommend you go and buy philippa's book um and it will probably revolutionize how you parent your children thank you so much for listening please subscribe to the podcast and uh, rate and review as well that's really helpful and i'll catch up with you next time